So welcome to uh, Trinity's A.K. Smith Visiting Writers Series. Before we get going, I should announce that our next event in the series is the poet Brenda Shaughnessy, who will be reading uh, at the Reese Room of Smith House at the north end of campus on Thursday, March 27th at uh, 4.30 p.m. So now I'll get the great things that most of you already know about Wally Lamb out of the way quickly, especially since traffic held Wally up and he did a mighty job getting here. He's been writing fiction since his first stories came out in the Hartford Current Sunday Magazine in 1981 with his first two novels, She's Come Undone and I Know This Much Is True, chosen for Oprah's Book Club. Since then, he has published three more best-selling novels, the most recent being We Are Water, for sale just next door, um, copies of which we have for you to purchase and that I suspect Wally might be willing to sign. But Wally has also said that his first calling was as a teacher, and he taught for 25 years at the Norwich Free Academy, followed by three years at UConn, where he was director of creative writing. Most important, for the last 15 years, he has been teaching writing to the women incarcerated at York Correctional Institute in Niantic, Connecticut. With Wally's help, these women have produced two stunning collections, couldn't keep it to myself, testimonies from our imprisoned sisters, and I'll fly away, further testimonies from the women of York Prison. Wally Lamb's writing awards are legion, and I will mention here only a few. The New England Book Award, the Friends of the Library Readers Choice Award, and the Connecticut Center for the Books Lifetime Achievement Award. He is also, as many of you know, an honorary graduate of Trinity College. People often talk of writer's writers. Wally Lamb is a reader's writer, as all who read him hungrily, repeatedly, and enthusiastically can testify. Now for the fun part, which is where I get to read something by Wally before he reads something by Wally. What I love about what I'm about to read is that it reminded me when I saw it in the New York Times last fall that however people may gush about Wally Lamb, he has never succumbed to the urge to gush about himself. He has said that he writes fiction to move past the boundaries of his own experience, but it turns out he's had an experience or two, and he heeds Hemingway's advice to communicate that experience by small details intimately observed. Here goes me as Wally. Christine and I had been friends in high school, but only friends. Voted, voted loveliest lady at the Coronation Ball, the signature social event of the class of 1968. She was clearly out of my league. Plus, she already had a boyfriend. Tom was a suave older man of 21 who had graduated to that real world for which we high schoolers were being prepared via the manipulation of our slide rules, the firing up of our Bunsen burners, and our alamand lefting and dosy doing during the square dancing unit and gym. Two years later, Christine was Tom's bride. I was a guest at their wedding. Several years later, Christine and I were both guests at another couple's wedding, and she was recently divorced. We were still a mismatch. She was an elementary school teacher who owned a home in suburbia that had wall-to-wall -wall shag carpeting, the fibers of which she perked up with a little plastic rake. She drove a new Toyota Celica, which she washed and vacuumed every week. 
I was an impoverished graduate student with shoulder-length hair, a wardrobe that skewed toward t-shirts and bib overalls, and a wheezing Studebaker with hot pink dashboard lights and floor mats obscured by beach sand and fast food refuse. Musically, I was into Elvis Costello and the Sex Pistols, and to my horror, she owned albums by John Denver and Olivia Newton-John. <laughs> we began dating anyway. When she invited me to dinner at her place, I brought a bottle of the terrible wine a grad student could afford. I petted her hyperactive cocker spaniel, Mandy, who shed so profusely that dog fur danced wraith-like in the air between Christine and me as she cooked. The meal that night consisted of baked potatoes, green beans, and London broil, a slab so thick that when Christine put it in the broiler at the bottom of her stove, it curled up horseshoe-like as it cooked. Then, strangely, it disappeared. Where had it gone, we both wondered. The answer, when Christine opened the drawer, it had dropped behind the broiler and onto that section of the linoleum floor where no vacuum cleaner ever goes. On my hands and knees, I reached in, burned my arms in the name of love, and retrieved the steak, which now sported a coat of Mandy's fur. Hey, even a guy in overalls can be gallant. It's okay, I said. Let's just order Chinese. Christine looked at me as if I were crazy. Then she stabbed the steak with a fork, rinsed it under the tap, finished cooking it, and served it on her wedding china. It was delicious. <laughs> Please join me in welcoming Wally Lamb back to Trinity. Hey, everybody. I'm, uh, I'm so happy to be here, and I'm so apologetic that, uh, that I was late. I'm not very good with directions to begin with, um, and then I realized that I didn't have any. Uh, and I came up Broad Street, and I knew I had to turn right onto Vernon, but there was posts all over there, and then I, I kept going, and I'm, you know, here I am. Uh, thank you for waiting. I, I appreciate your patience. Thank you, Lucy. I just said to her, as we were sort of exchanging seats there, um, that my, my work sounds so much better when Lucy reads it than when I do, so um, I'm grateful. Um, so... Um, I'm going to read a little bit from We Are Water, uh, my latest novel, uh, and, uh, and after that, uh, my favorite part, uh, if you have questions, I would love to, I would love to uh, entertain them and answer them if I can. Um, but before that, I thought I would read this little piece um, that I actually put up on my Facebook page, and um, a, a lot of people say, oh, this is one of the best things you ever wrote, go figure, um, and it's called Tales from the Road. Um, I, uh, between October and December, uh, I went to 47 different cities on a book tour. And uh, so uh, this, is, this is one of, the, one of the, uh, the stops that I'm writing about. I am riding toward number 43 of my 47 stop book tour. My driver, Irfan, drops me off in front of the store. It's the grand opening of this suburban Illinois Costco. Because of traffic, I'm 10 minutes late and full of apologies, but none of the front door greeters know what I'm talking about. Book signing, a manager says, no, I don't think we do those, but maybe if you write to the company. <laughs> Several people with clipboards approach. Each tries to sign me up for a Costco membership. 
Declining, I ask for directions to the men's room and the book department. I have my priorities, after all, and at 63, peeing is first. One of three employees knows where the bathrooms are located. Nobody knows where they keep the books. The restrooms are sparkling clean, brand new. I flush, wash, put my hands under those dryers that sound like they're powered by um, you know, an airplane engine, you know those types, those new, new ones. And then I wander the store. It is approximately the size of Delaware. <laughs> Fifteen minutes later, I find the books. We Are Water is stacked in piles roughly the same cubic footage as one of those pre-assembled backyard sheds that they sell. <laughs> Next to my book is Bill O'Reilly's book, Killing Jesus. <laughs> and if my cubic footage is a shed, his is a three-car garage. <laughs> I sit on the chair, and it is so low that I can rest. Oh, sorry. There's a table um, with Sharpie pens on it a poster of me on an easel, and a chair. I sit on the chair, and it is so low that I can rest my nostrils on the tabletop. I grab eight copies of Killing Jesus, stack them on the seat, and I sit back down. Much better. People stream by, confused or wary as they stare at me. Have I sprouted a horn or a melon-sized goiter? Has a ferret climbed on top of my head? Well, think positive, I tell myself. You've run out of toothpaste. You can use the GPS on your phone, find the health and beauty department, and buy some before you leave. A young manager stops by, and he asks me if he can get me anything. How about some book enthusiasts, I think. But what I say is, some water, please? He says he'll be right back with the water. Whoops, excuse me, O'Reilly. 20 minutes in, my first customer approaches the table. A little girl, about six, how much are these, she asks, pointing to the Sharpies. When I tell her they're not for sale, she blinks back her tears and then wanders away toward her mother in fleece wear. A couple stops. They look Middle Eastern. They may be Islamic. The wife is wearing a headscarf. The husband asks what my book is about. Well, it's partly about a wife who leaves her husband for a woman, I say. The husband frowns, takes his wife by the arm, and rushes her away. I chase after them, calling, well, it's also about a flood. They round the snow tire aisle, never to be seen again. And then two women arrive who have actually driven to the store to meet me and get their books signed. Wow, we thought there'd be a line, one of them says. Yeah, no, no line, I shrug. I sign, I pose for pictures with them, we chat. They say they're looking forward to reading the novel. I glance at my watch. I have about two more hours to go. Or would you like me to read you the first chapter, I ask them? Or maybe the first five or six? One of the women seems interested, but the other says she has to go home and start, start thawing out her turkey. Hmm, it's only Monday. Thanksgiving is Thursday. Why has she broken into a run? A husband and wife have an argument right in front of my table. Here's the dialogue. Wife, can you wait two seconds? I want to finish reading his book jacket. Husband, yeah, and I want those free mini meatballs they're giving away down the, down the aisle. And if they run out before we get, get there, you're going to go home and make me some goddamn meatballs. <laughs> and then a nerdy-looking boy with glasses and a faux hawk, age 10 or 11, asks me if I wrote all those, pointing to the hundreds of copies of We Are Water. Every damn one of them, I say. 
he tells me he hates reading. I tell him his haircut looks kind of stupid. <laughs> and that they're giving away free meatballs two aisles over. He says he hates meatball. And Game Boys, I say. Oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. You're like my favorite author of all time. An alternative looking young woman says, this apparently has nothing to do with a book purchase. I do honor her request and sign her hand. <laughs> For the last 25 minutes of my assigned time, I converse with a guy who says he's a police detective who always wanted to be a writer. You're living my dream, he says. I want to tell them that on book tour, I ran out of underwear and clean socks two days ago and that I had to eat M&Ms out of the hotel vending machine for dinner the night before and that he is living my dream to be able to leave this goddamn Costco and go home. <laughs> well, I never get my water. I find the toothpaste aisle, but I don't really think that I need a 30-pack. Exiting, I am asked by a half a dozen more people if I want to sign up for a Costco membership. Outside, it's snowing, freezing cold. I have forgotten my scarf inside, but I'm afraid I will never be able to find the book section again if I go back. Irfan drives up. I get in the car. Well, how was it? He says. Great, I say. They were giving away meatballs <laughs> and Sharpies. Here, have one. It's on me. Thanks. Thanks very much. I'm actually, I'm, uh, I'm running a little comic novella right now, um, and, I've, uh, and I'm trying to find a way to jam that little piece into it somehow. Anyway, um, last September, I flew out to Seattle, Washington uh, for the premiere of the Book It Repertory Theater's adaptation of my first novel, She's Come Undone. And as I sat there in that darkened theater, watching and listening to characters come alive on stage, and characters who had once upon a time only lived inside my head, and then for 21 years had lived between book covers, well, I kind of marveled at how bizarre and wonderful my life has been. Or as the Grateful Dead once put it, what a long, strange trip it's been. Now, I may not be dead, but I am grateful to every one of you uh, and all of my readers over the years who have supported my work and found it worth their while. And thank you so much for coming out on a, on a cold afternoon here. Um, you're, you honor and humble me by your presence, and um, I am grateful. Now, We Are Water is my fifth novel. It's a story about racism and family tragedy and the evolution of social mores and how and why visual artists do what they do and whether or not the creative process is a form of temporary madness. In some ways, this story is very different from its older siblings, my other books. Uh, for one thing, it's told in eight different voices. Four of them are female, four of them are male. But although my approach was different this time, my goal was really pretty much the same as it was in those earlier stories. And that goal is to go and search for the unme, the other, and to explore not only the ways in which we're all different from each other, but also what binds us together and makes us one. We Are Water is rooted in two events that I recall from my childhood in my hometown of Norwich, Connecticut, 
where in the 1950s, an unschooled African-American artist named Ellis Ruley lived and painted. Sadly, in his own lifetime, Ruley couldn't sell any of his paintings. And although the coroner ruled that his death in 1959 was accidental, Norwich's black community disputed that conclusion. And since his posthumous discovery back in the 1980s, Ellis Ruley's works today are prized by museums and collectors of American folk art. So in my novel, Ellis Ruley is the template for the fictitious character Josephus Jones, a laborer who paints pictures because he can't not paint them. And the other Norwich thread is a devastating flood that occurred in the city in March of 1963, the year that I was 12 years old. A dam holding back a lake at Mohegan Pond in the city's northern section collapsed, and the six million gallons of water that rushed downhill took a path of death and destruction, destroyed many of the stores in the downtown area, and five people were killed. And I still remember that night very vividly. I can still hear the roar of that water in my ears and the screams of third shift factory workers who were buried alive in the rubble of a factory where they worked. The raging water cut a path about six or seven houses down from our home on McKinley Avenue. And of all the news stories that emerged in the days after the flood, it was the one about the Moody family that affected me the most and still affects me. I want to tell you a little bit about the Moody's. Um, Ron and uh, Honey Moody, that was her nickname, um, were, they were a young couple, uh, young parents. They were in their mid-twenties. They had three little boys. The oldest was four, they had a two-year-old, and they had an infant. And what happened was when the dam broke and headed directly toward their way, they received about a two or three minute advance warning. And so with an upstairs neighbor, a 19-year-old boy, they rushed the kids into the car, and they were going to try to outrun the water. Um, well, they got in the car, started down the hill, and um, suddenly this wall of water hit them, and the car you know, rose from the ground, spun around, and then, and then um, was flown off a 15-foot retaining wall. Um, car goes underwater, the family and the neighbor somehow get out, and the father and uh, the 19-year-old neighbor, Tony, um, decide that they're going to get the kids up in a tree that's higher than the, than the water. Um, and with the help of the mom, they did that. And the mom was handing the little boys up to the two men um, when and the the, she had just gotten the baby up to them, and she was taken away. And uh, her body was found the next morning. Uh, in the rubble. It was um, from, that, from that yarn and twine factory that had collapsed. I remember that, that next day there was brick and string and twine all sort of in, a, in big jumbles with, with you know, fallen trees and so forth. Anyway, uh, as I said, I really re I remember that so vividly. Um, I was doing a radio, jump, jump forward then from 1963 to, to 2009. I had just had a little book come out called Wishing and Hoping. And I had gone back to Norwich to do a radio program. And um, at the end of the program, that question that many of us writers hate, uh, that the interviewer said, so what's next for Wally Lamb? 
And I didn't want to appear too dopey and say, I don't know. Um, and so I just grabbed something out of thin air and I said, well, um, maybe I'll write about the flood. Now, if you come from Norwich, you know that the flood is the 1963 flood. Anyway, um, I, was just, I was just fudging an answer to say something. Uh, but the following week, I get a call from a woman named Norma Kasuba. I didn't know her. Um, and she said, um, she said, you know, you're writing about the flood, I heard. And I said, yeah. <laughs> and she said, well, you know, you talked about those three little boys. Um, they're my cousins, uh, Tom, uh, Jimmy, and Sean Moody. And all of a sudden, the light went on in my head because Sean Moody had been one of my students when I taught high school in, in Norwich. And she said, um, Tom, the oldest, the four-year-old, um, has been obsessing his whole life to try to get the details. He's the only one that remembers his mom, and he is the only one that remembers some of the details of the flood. He does remember going underwater. He remembers being up in the tree and looking down at the water and feeling more excited than scared until he heard his little brother, Jimmy, screaming and crying. And then that's when he kind of figured out, ooh, this is, you know, there's something terrible going on. Anyway, um, I met the guys. I flew Tom up from Texas. Uh, and he and his brothers and Tony, Tony Arsini, who is now in his 70s, um, you know, that upstairs neighbor, uh, we walked the flood path uh, from the, the dam, which is now highly fortified, uh, down to the place where, um, where their mother was found. And then in one of the most moving moments of my life, uh, Tony and Tom, Tom is an engineer, so he had like, he had, you know, statistics and details and so forth. And Tony had his memory, he was the only adult there. And, um, and they found, they figured out which one was the tree that the three boys had been rescued from. And I tell you, that was, that was a, a day that I will never forget. Anyway, in constructing my novel, I used the Moody family story and the Ellis Ruley story as two distinct and different poles, almost like electrodes, if you will. And I set them up, and the fiction began to arc and crackle um, between those two. They really had nothing to do with one another uh, until I started making them have something to do with one another. Um, and that's when the story lifted off from the facts to become its own, its own thing. So I'd like to share an excerpt with you, speaking in the voice of a character named Kent, Kent Kelly. Uh, he's not a main character in the story, but he narrates one of the plot's major events. And his actions, both good and bad, become central to the life of one of the book's central characters. Kent is sent, um, just prior to this excerpt I'm gonna read, he's sent to his uncle Chick's house. Um, he is, um, he's trouble. He's uh, 16 years old. His mother can't handle him. His father has left the family. And so um, his mom sends him to her brother's house um, so that he, the, he could have a, a male influence and maybe be straightened out. Now, there is a four-year-old girl in this excerpt. Her name is Annie. And as an adult, she becomes one of the main characters of We Are Water. So here goes. Uh, this is in the voice of that, uh, that troubled cousin, Kent, who lives with the O'Day family. Tuesday, March 5th, 
1963. You know, I, I try not to even think about that night, but sometimes I can't help it. A nightmare will take me back there. Something during the day will trigger the memory. The other morning, when I got out of work, the van driving us back to the group home passed by some public works guys. They were out early flushing the hydrants, and bam, the sight and the sound of that gushing water brought me right back to my aunt and uncle's downstairs apartment on that March night, the worst night of my life. Aunt Sunny had just given the baby a bottle, and she had gotten her to sleep. Finally, she said, and when she walked out of Annie and Gracie's room, oh, she's been cranky all day. She went over to the window and looked out at the rain. It had been coming down for two days straight. Walking home from school that afternoon, I had gotten soaked to the skin. Uncle Chick and I were parked on the couch watching The Untouchables. Turning to face her husband, Aunt Sunny said that she was worried about Donald, their son, my goody-goody cousin. His indoor track team had had an away meet at Hartford Public, but she had expected that they would be home before this. Uncle Chick told her to relax, that the bus driver was probably just taking it slow because of the wet roads. Hey, you look beat, Sonny, he said. Go to bed. I'll stay up and wait for him. She nodded, kissed him, bent down and gave me a peck on the cheek. Usually it was Uncle Chick who went to bed first, but Aunt Sunny was the night owl like me. Leaving the living room, she was stopped by a blast of Tommy gunfire. On the TV, Elliot Ness's men were riddling mad dog Cole's thugs with bullets. Sonny said she didn't know why we wanted to watch this stuff. Hey, what can we say? Uncle Chick said. We're guys. Well, good night, you two, she said, shaking her head. Uncle Chick was drinking Rheingold's, which he usually did at night when he watched TV. There were two empties on the coffee table, and he was working on his third. When a commercial came on, he got up to take a piss, and as soon as he was out of sight, I picked up his beer, snuck a few quick swigs, and then placed it back where the wet ring was. Put my feet up on the coffee table, my hands behind my, my head. Donald could stay away all night as far as I was concerned. When Uncle Chick came back, he said, Hey, numbnuts, how many times have I told you not to put your shoes up on the furniture? <laughs> About as many times as Aunt Senny's told you to use a coaster, I said. He picked up a pillow and beamed me off the head with it. And I was just about to fire it back at him when something caught my eye. It was a light of some kind moving past the front window. And then there was this pounding at the front door. And somebody yelled. And Uncle Chick said, what the hell? He jumped up and he ran to open it. Whoever was out there was talking loud and excited. But I could only make part of it out. Damn, flood, leave now. Uncle Chick ran past me on the way to his and Aunt Sonny's room. Get Annie, he ordered me. Wrap Annie in a blanket and get her in the car. As I ran into Annie's and Gracie's room, I heard Aunt Sunny's panicked voice. Is it Donald? Did something happen to Donald? When I pick up, picked her up, Annie started whimpering. She was still half asleep. It's okay, it's okay, I kept saying. Leaving her room, I almost collided with Uncle Chick, who was going in to get Gracie. What did I tell you, Kent? Come on, get her in the goddamn car. Okay, okay, I said, Jesus. When I got outside, the wind was blowing and the rain was hitting me in the face. Old Mr. and Mrs. Dugas, next door neighbors, were hurrying toward their Studebaker. The water rushing through the street was up to my ankles. Annie wanted to know where her mommy was, and I said, she's coming, she's re she'll be right out. From the back seat, I watched them running toward us. Uncle Chick was holding the baby, 
wrapped up in a blanket like Annie. Aunt Sunny was behind him, struggling to get into her winter coat. The neighbor across the street called to Chick from his upstairs porch to ask what was going on. Dam broke up at Waquanic Pond, he shouted. The water's coming this way. Uncle Chick started the mercury, punched forward, and began gunning it down the hill. Aunt Sunny was up front next to him, clutching the baby. When we caught up to the Dugas's car, Uncle Chick laid on the horn. Come on, move it, he shouted. But instead, their brake light went on. He drove up onto the sidewalk and tried to pass them, but there wasn't enough room. Get going or get the hell out of the way, he shouted. He gave the horn another couple of blasts. Chick, I'm scared, Aunt Sunny said. Annie was crying now, the baby too. Uncle Chick and ordered Aunt Sunny and me to open our windows because the front windshield was starting to fog up. And then the mercury stalled. And while Uncle Chick was starting it up again, the Dugas's car disappeared around the curve in the road. The engine caught and the Merc shot forward again. But just as we reached the turn, we were hit from the back by a wall of water. The tires left the road and the car started bobbing around moving every which way instead of straight ahead, no matter which way Uncle Chick turned the wheel. When I looked out the window, some big gray thing whizzed past us. I saw a tree topple over. I remember feeling scared, but excited too, like we were on some thrilling, out of control carnival ride or something. And then something smashed into the back of the car, sent Annie and me flying to the floor and propelling the Merc in a crazy spin. As I scrambled to get, to get up back onto our seats, Aunt Sunny screamed, and I looked out the front windshield and recognized the drop-off we were heading toward, that retaining wall that was a good 15 feet high. The Merc dropped nose down, and we went underwater. The roaring in my ears stopped, and everything turned from gray to black. When I pulled myself and then Annie to the surface, I saw that the car had landed vertically, its nose underwater, its back bumper above it. It had somehow come to a stop that way, and I saw also that the station wagon's way back was about two feet above the water. Remembering that Uncle Chick's toolbox was back there, I lifted myself over the seat back and pulled Annie up too. Holding her in one arm, I groped around in the cold black water, feeling around the spilled tools until my hand located my uncle's ball-peen hammer. I grabbed it and used it to smash out the back window, and when I looked back, I saw that Uncle Chick, Aunt Sunny, and the baby had made it up to the surface, too. Aunt Sunny was coughing and spitting out water, holding Gracie one-handed above her head. Uncle Chick was wild-eyed. As my eyes adjusted to the dark, I could see that the Mercury's back bumper was leaning against a long, low building of some kind. If I could climb out and onto the bumper without having the car move forward, the roof would be in reaching distance. I'm going to climb up there, and then I'm going to pull you guys up. I called back. What? What did you say? Chick said. The roar of the water rushing past us was deafening. I repeated what I'd said, shouting it this time. Climb up where? Chick shouted back. Onto a roof. The car is leaning against the building. I think I can reach the roof. Save Annie. Aunt Sunny pleaded. My hands were wet and shaking from the icy cold, but the pebbly roof shingles gave me some grip. And on my second try, I managed to hoist myself up and swing one leg over and onto the roof, and then the other. Leaning as far as I dared over the edge, I reached down and coaxed Annie up onto the bumper. Her little fingers curled around mine, and I pulled her up one-handed. I got her, I shouted. She's up here on the roof. 
Somehow, Uncle Chick managed to climb out of the back window and onto the bumper with the baby tucked under his arm. He handed her up to me, grabbed onto the edge of the roof, and then pulled himself up. Come on, Sonny, he shouted, turning back to his wife. Climb out as best you can onto the bumper, and I'll take it from there. She tried once, twice. I can't do it, she screamed. She was panic-stricken. Yes, you can. I know you can, son. I figured her soaked winter coat was wearing her down. Aunt Sonny, I shouted. Take your coat off. What? I can't hear you. I shouted it again as loud as I could. Well, she heard me that time because I could see her one trembling hand fiddle with the buttons while she held onto the seat back with the other. One-handed, she somehow struggled the coat off of her shoulders and pulled the sleeves from her arms, and the coat fell away. Lighter now, she managed to get herself halfway out of the back window, but she was still halfway inside as well. Between her outstretched arm and Uncle's chicks, there was a foot and a half of space. Kent, I'm going further over the edge, Uncle Chick said. Hold on to my ankles, and when I say pull, you pull with all your motherfucking might. I nodded. Annie, here, I said, turning to her. Hold your sister. She shook her head and said she was only allowed to hold Gracie when she was sitting on the couch. Come on, I said, this is different. I held the baby out to her, and she took her, bucking and crying in her arms. I knelt behind Uncle Chick, and I grabbed onto his ankles. Okay, I said. But what if I didn't have the strength to do it? What if all three of us got pulled back into the black water? A thought flashed in my mind. God, I wish Donald was here. We need Donald. Okay, I got a hold of her, Uncle Chick shouted. Now pull! With my elbows and knees digging into the gritty shingles, I strained and pulled as hard as I could, managing to move myself backward, but only a couple of inches. Pull, goddammit, pull! Uncle Chick screamed. I clenched my teeth, grunted, gained another several inches. That's it! Come on, keep going, pull! My arms felt like they would come right out of the sockets, but when I pulled again, we gained another five or six inches, and Aunt Sunny's head came into view. We were doing it. We were doing it. Pull, Kent! Pull! And as I pulled, I felt the roof begin to give way under me. Uncle Chick's body slipped forward instead of backward, and Aunt Sunny's head disappeared again. The roof's caving in, I screamed. Then let go, Chick screamed. Save the girls, Kent. Save my kids. On my hands and knees, I watched him slip over the side. The sound of the roaring water faded away again. I must have gone deaf for a few seconds, because when I looked over at Annie, she was screaming, but there wasn't any sound. Afraid that the roof would cave in altogether, I crawled over to her, hugging her body tight against mine. And then I remembered the baby. Where's Gracie? I said. My hearing had returned. She was slippery, she sobbed. She wouldn't stop squirming. No, I thought. I scanned the empty roof. Oh, no. Oh, no. And then I stood... And I grabbed onto Annie's hand. Come on, I said. we got to get off of this thing before it caves. Spotting a tree growing on the far side of the building, I led her across the roof toward it. I don't remember the particulars of how I got us both up into that tree, but I did. We sat together on one of the bigger limbs, our legs dangling over the side, me with one arm wrapped around Annie's waist and the other arm holding on for dear life to a branch above us. Oh, poor Annie. 
She had long since lost the blanket that I'd wrapped her up in, and she was only wearing her cold, wet pajamas. She was shivering like crazy, and though I couldn't hear them, I could see that her teeth were chattering. The shiny black water was racing beneath us, carrying ice and debris, carrying little Gracie to who knew where. What did Gracie weigh, 10 pounds, 12? There was no way in hell she was gonna survive. I unzipped my jacket and pulled Annie tight as I could against the side. And then I zipped it up again, figuring my body heat might warm her up a little bit. As best I could, I tried to hold in my sobs so that she wouldn't feel that I was crying about Gracie. As we waited to be found and rescued, I realized that the rain had finally stopped and that the moon had come out from behind the clouds. Now I saw exactly where we were and why the mercury had stopped in that vertical position. After it had pitched itself over the retaining wall, it had landed at the back of the Ford dealership on Franklin Avenue and wedged itself between the long garage that we had climbed on top of and these two huge black oil tanks that sat there kitty-corner against each other in front of the car. There to the right of the tree we were in was McPadden's funeral home, and across the street was Stanley's Market, where I bought my sodas and smokes and stole candy bars. To the left were the grinder shop, the laundromat, the dry cleaners, where two days before I had picked up that long winter coat that Aunt Sunny had worn and later had to shed after it got waterlogged. Just a little ways down the street was the Shamrock Barbershop, where my Uncle Chick worked. I found myself wondering if that minor bird they kept in the shop had survived the flood. Annie reached up and she tapped me on the shoulder. She said something I couldn't hear over the noise of the water. What? I said, say it louder. She wanted to know if the cops were going to make her go to jail because she had dropped her sister. I thought long and hard. And then I said, you didn't drop her. I dropped her. You got that? She looked up at me, confused. I had her in my jacket. But then she slipped out while we were climbing into this tree. No, she didn't, she said. Yes, she did. And I don't want you telling anyone she didn't. All right? We stared at each other for the next several seconds. All right, she said. In my whole life, that was the most generous thing I ever did for anyone. Or I don't know. Maybe it was the only generous thing I ever did. Look, Annie said a few minutes later. When I followed her gaze, I saw Uncle Chick. He was back on the roof of the garage, creeping toward us on his hands and knees. And when he reached the edge, he stood up and left, grabbing hold of the tree trunk and then shimmying up and onto a sturdy limb on the other side of ours. He was sobbing and shouting. I, I couldn't hold her again. The car moved forward, and when our hands went underwater, she, she slipped away from my grip. Sunny's a strong swimmer, though. She, she'll be okay. I know she will. But, oh, God. What, I mean, what, oh, God. He hadn't yet realized that Gracie was not with us. And later, when he did, he rested his head against the tree trunk and began wailing. As the water receded, blocks of ice, smashed cars, and broken tree limbs began to reveal themselves. When we, started sh when, when we started shouting for help, a guy appeared on the upstairs back porch of the funeral parlor. I see you, he called. I'll get help. 
and a few minutes later, he and two men in rain slickers and hip boots, firemen, I guess they were, came sloshing through the knee-high water toward us. Two of the men were carrying a ladder against their shoulders. They leaned against the tree trunk. One climbed the ladder, got hold of Annie, and climbed down again with the poor kid over his shoulder. Uncle Chick and I climbed down after them. For some reason, there were tangles of twine in the felled tree limbs, and the water was now only up to our shins. As I followed the firemen, I kept stumbling on these loose bricks underfoot. They were all over the place. An ambulance took Annie and me to the hospital where two nurses treated us for exposure, removing our wet clothes and wrapping us in heated blankets. Another nurse used a rubber squeeze bulb to suck dirty water and mucus from our throats and nostrils. They made us put on these hospital nightgown things, and they told us we had to stay there overnight for observation. Well, at first, they were going to separate us, but Annie was too scared to let me out of her sight. So they put us in the same two-bedroom. And when Annie asked the nurses where her mommy was, they gave each other funny looks and then said only that people were looking for her. And I'm going to jump ahead a little bit. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to summarize uh, a couple of pages. At around midnight, Kent's cousin Donald, Mr. Goody Goody, um, enters his hospital room. And he tells Kent that his father, Uncle Chick, uh, has been taken to the hospital also and is in a state of shock. Kent tells Donald that his mother and baby sister have drowned in the flood. And then he pushes over in bed and Donald gets in with him. Kent holds him as his cousin clings to him and cries. In the wake of the tragedy, the funerals, and the need for life to go on despite what's just happened, Uncle Chick starts drinking heavily and Donald deals with his grief by not dealing with it, making himself so busy with school and sports and extracurricular activities that he is mostly absent from this house of pain. Kent's mother drives to the O'Day's house to reclaim her son and take him back home because her brother has enough on his plate, she says, without having to worry about him too. But little Annie throws a tantrum when she hears that she is about to lose another member of her family. And so Chick tells his sister that Ken is no trouble and that, in fact, he's a big help with Annie. And so Kent's mother drives home by herself, and Kent stays on. And here again, to finish off, is Kent's voice. So in the weeks that followed, Donald got busier than ever. He didn't even come home for supper half the time. It was just his way of coping, I figured. Uncle Chip coped by moving on from beer to the hard stuff. And then he started going down to the silver rail after work instead of coming home coming home reeling, stumbling drunk, and crashing onto the couch instead of his and Aunt Sonny's bed. So it was me and Annie in the house a lot of the time, just the two of us. And that was when I started touching her in ways that I wasn't supposed to. I didn't really know why I was doing it. All I knew was that Aunt Sonny's death made me angry and sad, and then my little cousin and I shared a secret that her baby sister had died because of her, not me. I had told that lie to protect Annie, but now I began using it against her. The better part of me knew that it was wrong, but the better part of me didn't seem to be in charge when we were by ourselves, which was plenty of the time. 
It was like my hands had a mind of their own. And on that happy note, <laughs> I'll stop. So on a bad writing day, I will sometimes, even though I know better, go up. I, I write on a computer that is not connected to the internet, I, and I write down in our in our in the basement of our home, and uh, and I'll I'll climb two flights of stairs on a bad day, and get on get on the internet, and sometimes um, I will check Amazon.com. I don't care about the you know the sales numbers, but I do I get I do get curious uh, about those anonymous uh, <laughs> reviews that people do and the number of stars they give. And uh, not too long ago, I read one that said, it was a one-star review, and, and the woman said that she would give it zero stars if that was an option. Um, because nobody wants to, wants to read about a pedophile. And, um, and I sort of framed an answer in my head. You know, she was very angry that I had taken up that subject matter. And, um, you know, it's like, first of all, I didn't think she could speak for everybody. And secondly, um, I wanted to tell her, um, you know, meaning no disrespect, that her comfort level couldn't be my priority. That I had to go where the story and where the characters took me. I don't, I don't write with an outline. You know? I would love to be able to do it. I think I could write books faster, but I, it just doesn't work that way for me. So I create these characters that I worry about, and then I speak in their voices, and then I see where they're going to take me, and um, and I and I have to do that. I can't I can't really censor myself or worry about what readers um, you know might object to, um, because if that happened, I would be dead in the water. So um, I know this subject matter is painful. It was, it was really creepy because you know. Kent gets creepier, and um, it was it was really kind of scary, and you know, it was hard to write in his chapters. He has, I think, two or three chapters in the in the book from his voice, um, and then comes in toward the end of the book. Um, but um, you know, I work uh, as as Lucy said, I work with incarcerated women, and there is um, a high correlation between women who are in prison. Um, and women who have been incested as children. Um, and, um, and I've been on the receiving end of a lot of those sort of confessional reflections. Um, you know, how and why um, Uncle Sammy or Grandpa or Dad did what they did. Um, and so when I was writing this, you know, I knew, I knew Knew the, I knew the perps, um, modus operandi, so to speak, um, but I didn't know, I, didn't, I, didn't, I couldn't get, I wanted to get in his head, and I also didn't want to get in his head, um, but I went there anyway, and, um, and I learned things. Um, probably the most, the most thing that was reinforced, uh, the, the thing that was reinforced the most for me was the toxicity, how toxic those, how toxic those secrets um, can be if they remain inside the victim and, 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 and curdle their lives. 
Um, I, when I was out on that book tour, one of my stops was to the Diane Reem show, you know, the, uh, the NPR interviewer. And when we had callers, um, a woman called in to say that she had read the book and she was glad I took up that subject. And then she said something that was, made it so much more vivid to me. She said, um, I've never gotten over the fact that my uncle did what he did to me. But she said, imagine having to live inside your body when your body is the crime scene. And it was like, boy, all of a sudden I got it in a much, you know, in a, in a, in a much more powerful way. Anyway, I can really, I can really bring a party down, can't I? Uh, so at this point, I'm going to open it. We have time for questions. Yeah, we got Okay. All right. Um, Somebody always has to be the brave one to ask the first question. There she so is. Where is it in the, the story that this um, incident happens? It, it happens. The, char- the, the story starts with um, a middle-aged um, ex-husband and ex-wife. Um, she is leaving her husband, who is a, a university uh, psychologist, um, for a woman. She's, a, she's an artist and has moved pretty much to New York to be as part of the art scene. And she has fallen in love with the gallery owner who has made her an art star uh, in, the, you know, in the market. And so she leaves, she leaves Orion, her husband, and the beginning chapters are tan- you know, they're in tandem. Uh, uh, one, you know, one chapter from the, from the wife, one from the husband, go back and forth and back and forth. And Annie, the little girl in the excerpt I just read, is that middle-aged woman. So that's the contemporary story. Um, and then this goes back, um, you know, many years. And um, it's an episode that appears, I think, at about the two-thirds mark. So you know that Aunt, something terrible has happened to Annie. You know that she is, you know, a lot of her activity and a lot of her art, her angry art, is in response to this thing. Not only the um, not only the uh, the molestation, but also the secret keeping, which is just as damaging, if not more. And um, and so it all it, you know it all is going to come out. Um, and, but Kent is the one; he's the character who I thought was the, he's the only adult who survived. Um, you know, and you know the father has died of drink at this point; the mother's dead, and so he it's in his voice, his narration what happened that night and the uh, that sort of um, bargain that he made with his little cousin who was you know too young to, to know it all. Anything else? Can I ask a, a just an anecdote? Yeah, please. So a few years ago you were speaking at Real Art Lake. Uh-huh. So I read um, She's Come Undone, a great anticipation series and I got out of my writing group that was on Monday and I put my satchel over my shoulder and I started to walk into Manchester Community College and I said to myself, Now, Doreen, even Dolores Price, Dolores Price has her life together. And then I thought, Oh, God, she has heart restrictions. <laughs> <laughs> and it was that vivid that I thought I was comparing myself to Dolores Price. Well, thank you. That's a, that's a wonderful compliment. Some of, um, when my editor, when that book was first published way back in 1992, my editor gave a copy to her mother, and her mother read it, and then she called her up, and she said, 
hey, I want to meet Dolores. And she said, oh, you mean Wally? And, she, and, and the mother said, no, I want to meet him. I want to meet Dolores. So, uh, yeah, she's, uh, she's chugged along there for, uh, you know, over 20 years now. And, uh, you know, that, that story, and I know this much is true, the second novel, they were bought, both bought by the movies. Um, and they have been movie projects forever and ever, nothing made, you know, so that, so that we can, you know, go and watch all those crappy movies that they actually greenlight. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so they're, uh, you know, maybe, maybe you'll see her on the screen someday, maybe not. Thank you. Do, uh, Darlene, is it? Doreen. Doreen. Okay. I knew it was one of those musketeers, but I wasn't sure. <laughs> uh, anybody else? Yes, sir. Oh, yeah. Yeah? You know, I try not to read novels. Uh, I, st I stay away from novels because I don't want to get other voices inside my head. Um, I'm a big magazine reader. I read the New Yorker from cover to cover all the time. I read, uh, you know, I read, I, I, I'm, I'm embarrassed to say that I read, you know, People and Entertainment Weekly and all those things. If my intellectual friends come over, I sort of like shove them under the couch quickly. Um, but, uh, you know, I'll, I, and, I, and, and I, re I can read short stories for some reason. I can read nonfiction. Um, but then I catch up to novels between books. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. And when, when you're, deciding, you're deciding on uh, who to sell to a movie or mm -hmm. a group, uh, how do you decide which, which entities to sell to? I mean, do you, do you have some priorities that, because they have taken a certain subject matter and brought it into the uh, movie world? Mm -hmm. Well, um, She's Come Undone was sold to Warner Brothers. And, uh, it, well, it was, it, no, I, I have to correct that. It was sold to Geffen Pictures, uh, David Geffen. And then, and then after that, David Geffen um, uh, formed DreamWorks with um, Spielberg and Katzenberg. And so they had to divide up the Geffen properties, and Geffen had had some kind of a deal with Warner Brothers, so it landed, She's Come and Done landed with Warner Brothers rather than DreamWorks. And um, I think that's always been part of the problem um, because Warner Brothers does different kinds of pictures. You know? and, um, and so they, they haven't quite known what to do with this. Um, they, it's gone through three or four different screenwriters. I wrote a screenplay when they had almost no money to give anybody. I said, oh, okay, at this point, I will write it if there's no money to be had. And, um, and so, you know, it just sort of lies dormant. Um, there have been people who have, um, you know, people like Reese Witherspoon, uh, Zach Braff, who was in that, that uh, Scrubs, I guess it was, that sitcom. And then he wrote, he did a little, he wrote and, and um, starred in a, and directed, I think, a little wonderful little movie called um, Garden State. And I thought he would be a good match for it. Um, and um, you know, these, they, what happens is these people, the stars and the directors, they have all these projects, all these different irons in the fire, and they, you know, they 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 talk bullshit a lot. And they, um, you know, we are Wally, we are passionate to do this film, you know. And whenever I hear the word passionate, it's like you know, fingernails scratching down a blackboard. Not you know, that's an old 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 reference. I, you know, you younger people don't know, probably know what that sounds like, but it's not charming. Anyway, um, so so now to give you a, a more recent example, um, last week I drove up to Ryan's Deli up, up there in Vernon, and I had a meeting with somebody, a young producer, um, who is excited about my little funny book um, called Wishing and Hoping, and um, 
and he wants to turn it into a lifetime TV movie, um, which would play this coming Christmas. And my dilemma is that he seemed very excited and nothing much has ever happened for me at the movies. I've been waiting and waiting and waiting for all these years. But my agent's advice is um, not to take this deal because it's not much money, for one thing. But secondly, she doesn't want to, she doesn't want me to tarnish my image, right? As a serious writer. So it's like, yeah, come on, what's so funny? <laughs> but, uh, uh, but, you know, I mean, I, th I think it'd be fun to see something made. So I may, I may go with it, uh, despite my, uh, my uh, agent's advice. What do you think? Yeah. Yeah, some people think not. Yes, ma'am. Um, so you mentioned that for the books you were really inspired by Amy Pascal and Holcomb, and know that Amy Pascal refused to make it. Is uh, do most does your inspiration come a lot from your book writing, things that you read, or not really? No, you know, having when I travel around the country or you know abroad. Um, you say Connecticut, and people assume Western Connecticut, you know, where you know people join the country club and send their kids to prep school and all that kind of stuff. And I come from Eastern Connecticut, and we are way different. You know, we, you know, we root for the Sox, and uh, instead of the Yankees, that we, uh, you know, we, um, you know, we bowl instead of playing. You know, you know I don't know. And uh, and 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 um, I guess I guess my the thing that I've said before is. We're more liverwurst than pate, you know, and um, and and so that's my Connecticut, and those are my people. Not only because I grew up there, but also because I taught there for 25 years. Um, you know, we drop our eyes and you know use the word wicked as an adverb in every other sentence and all that kind of stuff. And so, um, and 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 that's just sort of natural to write about that. I created a fictional version of. My hometown, Norwich, but I, I'm, I feel, I feel liberated to throw a little New London in. Sometimes a little Hartford, uh, Willimantic, where we used to live, um, and I call this town Three Rivers, Three Rivers, Connecticut. And I've set, I think, three novels there. And this little, this little book that I'm working on now, uh, it's a, it's a sequel to Wishing and Hoping, and uh, that's going to be there too. I think we can take one more question, and then after that, people can ask questions in there and write my book. Oh, that'd be great. Yeah, and you, and you, I'll talk to privately. Okay. Uh, you've probably answered this question many times, but can you talk a little bit about Yeah, um, and in and this is coming. This novel now comes full circle a bit because you know there are four female uh, voices in there. Um, but I, um, I never, I never thought I wanted to be a writer. And um, back in 1981, Memorial Day, um, my wife and I went to the hospital, and um, you know our first son, my wife delivered our first son, our first kid, Jared who is now 32. Um, and I went home uh, to call the relatives and take a quick shower. And, um, and somebody who wasn't me started saying a few sentences while I was in the shower. You know? um, 
And that turned, I, I wrote, I, I had the impulse, I didn't, I wasn't even thinking of it as a character because I didn't think I wanted to write fiction. But I had the impulse, you know, I ran naked down the hallway, dripping, and I wrote what that, what that character said. And then I forgot about it, and about a month later, I looked and I, I was cleaning my desk, and it's like, oh yeah, I remember that. And I sat down and I start, I start writing what became my first short story. And that's how Dolores came to me, too. Um, shower, same shower, uh, a couple of years later. Um, and this character, female character, said, well, the dork just left me, good riddance. And I, I didn't know who she was or anything, but I kind of liked her because she was, I could tell she was in pain, but she was also self-deprecating. And, um, and she was kind of a wise ass, you know? And I liked that. And so I started writing Dolores' voice. Um, I wrote a lot of her childhood stuff first. And, um, you know, pre-puberty, I don't know how little boys are, are that different from little girls, you know, before secondary sex characteristics, characteristics come in. I don't know. Um, but um, it wasn't that hard to write. And then, and then when she becomes, um, you know, sort of, you know, old enough for, for sexual stuff, um, then it became really challenging. And I stopped several times because I didn't know if it was appropriate to do this. Now, that said, I had grown up in a neighborhood of girls. Um, I have two older sisters. The only other boy on McKinley Avenue was Vito Signorino, and he used to throw rocks at me. Uh, and, or in the, in the wintertime, snowballs. And on one memorable day, a rock inside of a snowball. And uh, my mother said to me, I don't want you playing with Vito anymore. And it's like, who the hell wants to play with Vito? I just want to evade him, you know? Um, but so that sort of cast me, when I was a kid hanging around in the summertime, it cast me in the role of observer. You know, my sister, uh, my, our, we had girl cousins who lived right next door. And my sisters and cousins would be, you know, making up these games of pretend. And usually, you know, they didn't want me to play. But every once in a while, there would be a role. They would cast me in a role, you know. And one time I remember they decided they were going to, they, they were playing this, they found some net curtains or something. And they were wrapping, they were going to be harem girls. And so they invented this game called Kingy Boy. And I was the titular character in this game. I was, I was, I was Kingy Boy. And so they wrapped a towel around my head. And, um, and they made me sit cross-legged on the floor. And they were dancing and undulating around me and saying, you know, kingy boy, you know, all this kind of stuff. And I thought to myself, this is so stupid. And, but then I got interested when, as the game was, was, was concluding, my sister Gail said, um, don't tell Ma we were playing this. So all of a sudden, it got a little bit more interesting. And I didn't tell my mother, but I was seven years old, and I was about to make my first communion. And so I went to confession. And I said, you know, I, I said to her, you know, I'm, I'm in the box with Father Ziegler. You know, he's been, and I said, you know, bless me, Father, for I have sinned. It has been, well, zero weeks since my last confession. Here are my sins. I, uh, I call my sister a stupid pig, and I told three lies, and I played Kingy boy. <laughs> and Father Ziegler says, All right, well, for your penance, I want you to say three Our Fathers, three Hail Marys, and wait a minute, you play what? <laughs> and so, you know, if you grew up in my household and in my neighborhood, you know, it's not that strange that you would 
you know, grow up and write, you know, she's come undone. Uh, it, uh, I, think that, I think that was early training for me. Um, but I did lose my nerve a lot. And, um, but I work in writers groups, and it was always the women in the group who would point out whenever I had, you know, false notes, um, tell me, you know, oh no, a woman would never think like that. A woman would be, you know, if there was a glass top table, a woman would be worried about how her thighs spread out under the glass, you know, and you know, you know, stuff like that. And so I had lots of, I had lots of opportunity. You know, people, when people read, she's coming in. They're reading like draft 14 or something like that. So um, that's how I was able to kind of, hopefully, uh, you know, tell it realistically. Um, when when that book was about to be published, um, this guy he was the he was the the publisher at Simon Schuster, and he brings he brings me to his office and he said, "Are you ready for this?" And I said, "Ready for what?" And he said, "Well, you know, writing a book in the opposite gender." And I said, "I think I'm ready. Why wouldn't I be ready?" <laughs> uh, but you know, I think I I don't know. I guess if men are from Mars and women are from Venus, Venus, I'm. I guess I'm an intergalactic traveler. I've just never, I've just never really seen those big walls between the two sexes. So, that's because you're from Earth. <laughs> okay. Oh, that's that's good to know. All right. Well, thank you all. I really appreciate you being here. And you're a great audience. I, I appreciate that as well.